Best Rest Product is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA, comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Googletech filters, cyclepump.com. And Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear, greenchiliadv.com. Choosing the correct line is an important skill for riders, in particular with a heavy adventure bike. In fact, it can make the difference of you making it or not. The question is, how do you build the skill of choosing a line? What should you watch for and what are the key factors that should go into your decision? Well, today, that's the topic of our exclusive Rider Skills program. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. It's wind pressure that powers the Moto Breeze chain oiler. No electrical or vacuum connections. It delivers the oil to a felt pad on your swing arm. No nozzles near your sprockets. One ounce of oil gets 1,000 miles or 1,600 kilometers. Get more miles from your chain and sprockets. MotoBreeze.com. Simon When riders talk about choosing a line, what exactly do they mean? Do you choose one of a certain number of pre-designed arcs that allow you to ride through a corner on the street or for off-road? Is the line the well-worn groove, the path that most other riders take, or is it also an arc set at a certain degree? Probably the simplest way to describe what a line is or what choosing a line means is this. Choosing a line is simply finding an imaginary route with your eyes. That's it. Route finding with your eyes. And choosing a line is something we do all the time without giving it a second thought. For instance, you're walking into a store. You see some displays ahead of you. You look at the obstacles. Maybe there's a person standing on a ladder stocking a shelf that's blocking the route, the easy route for you. So you decide to walk ahead to the next aisle. You go right around the bin and you tuck in behind a cardboard cutout and then down the aisle that you want. You did it. You chose a line. On the bike, Maybe you ride into a parking lot. Someone's parked a pickup truck with a long trailer, got a bunch of lumber hanging out the trailer at an odd angle. And right behind that trailer, in the only space that you can fit your bike through, there's a small square of plywood lying on the ground. So that leaves a small gap that you estimate you can fit through, providing you're careful because you got to watch for cars that may not be paying attention as you go around this. You did it. You chose a line. Using only your eyes, you assess the route the obstacles on that route, potential hazards, then planned a path and noted where the extra attention was required. And you did all this in about a second and a half, maybe even less. You chose a line, not the line, but your line. Because your buddy, for instance, who's riding behind you, she didn't go through the gap like you did. She chose a different route that, in her estimate, lessened the chance of a car not seeing her. She avoided the plywood scrap on the ground. And she just had to be careful with some people walking across a path in front of her. Both chose different lines. Neither was wrong necessarily in my imaginary example, but they both chose a route that was suitable to them and suitable to their riding skills and what risks they wanted to take and what they wanted to accomplish. So a line isn't something drawn on the ground. Is not some sort of abstract arc? 
aligned is something that you choose using your knowledge and skills. Both riders looked at that situation. They imagined themselves riding through it. Maybe they imagined one route, they got to the first obstacle and they thought, nope, that doesn't work. So they go back and imagine another route. That is choosing a line. Rider Skills is an exclusive program we developed here at Adventure Rider Radio designed to give you tools that can improve your riding skills both on and off-road. Now, of course, these segments are not meant to be a substitute for professional training. These are ideas and concepts that should you choose to try, you're doing so at your own risk. Today for Rider Skills, we have Clinton Smout back once again from Smart Adventures in Ontario, Canada. Clinton, welcome back to Adventure Rider Radio. Hi, Jim. How's the snow where you are? <laughs> I was going to ask you the same thing. It really does sort of put the final, may I say, icing on the cake as far as for the end of the season riding. Motorcycles, yes. that is. Yeah, the last month when I knew the end was coming, I've really tried to ride as much as I could and not take the truck. Mm-hmm. But now, today, I took the truck because we had four inches of snow, very icy, cold conditions. So I've kept one bike out in case we get a break in the weather, (laughs) but uh, I think it's over. You know, I've thought about this thing. What is it with the the last day thing? When it comes to the end of the season, for us that live in an area where you don't ride in the wintertime, or there's half the year you don't ride, or times you don't ride, what is it about that last few days? Why do we we treasure those so much and, and sort of just go through the summer and not really worry about it? I think if you're a passionate rider, it hurts to give up a bike. Like for me, it'll be four to five months before I can get back out on a trail or on a road again. Yeah. And that that's why I love touring, you know, somewhere where there isn't a lot of snow. So I'm looking forward to March. I have a Baja trip planned. Mm. And then uh, a week's helping triumph at a dealer meeting somewhere sunny. I don't know where that'll be. So that'll get me off a snowmobile for a week. Uh, somewhere sunny, they're going to take you to Calgary. Yeah, could be. <laughs> <laughs> Sun and lots of snow. <laughs> yes. Wow. Anyway, regardless of whether we're going into winter or not, we're still talking about rider skills, which is what we're doing now. We're talking about choosing your line and maybe some other tips for, for scouting rough sections with this. Choosing the line is finding the route, finding the right route. Exactly. That's all it is, is just finding yep. the right route. It's not something that's that's there and printed on the ground. It's you using your skills and your thought process to find the route for you and your motorcycle to get through that section. That's right. So if you're a street rider, picking a line through a series of S-bends, mm. you know, maybe you've apexed the corner so it allows you to keep a little more speed and lean, lean angle out because you're maximizing the width of the lane that you're in. If you choose a bad line in a corner, that could be a problem. It could push you into oncoming traffic or off the road. So it's very similar for off-road. Uh, there's good lines and there's bad lines. 
Right. So it's just our, our route of travel. And the idea of picking the line is to pick the, the best route going through there. Okay. Exactly. So that makes perfect sense. So um, yeah. w- w- what is this all about? How do we choose a line? We come up and we look at a section. What, what sort of things are we looking for? Well, what I do is always send a customer to in first, you know, if it's rough and then see how they do. And that helps me select my line. Right. Uh, of course, I'm kidding. But there is some truth into watching where other riders are going or have already gone. So if you have the time, park, where are the established ruts if it's soft ground? Because that's a telltale sign of what other riders have already done in front of you. Maybe their choices were good. If you see the imprint of a bike in the mud, (laughs) <laughs> off to the side. Oh, I see what you're talking about. You mean with the bike laying sideways. <laughs> yeah. Then maybe that wasn't a good choice, mm. but um, a lot of it has to do with vision. And you have to be going slow enough or stop to really take in all the terrain when deciding the best choice of where you're going to put that front wheel. So when we're picking a line, do we always scout it? Or are, you, are you recommending that people always stop and scout it? Or does this depend on the degree of difficulty for the, for yeah. the perceived section? I think for your, it depends on your experience. Um, I ride with people who are new to adventure bike riding and they should slow down and maybe stop if it's really ugly. But if they've gone through some training and in the training module, they did some sand and ruts and logs, they probably don't have to stop every time. They can say, okay, this is how I do that. I've done this before. There just wasn't a lot of trees beside me. And the more you do it, the more confidence and skill you'll get. But no matter who you are, rougher terrain, challenging trail, and picking a bad line is going to be part of adventure riding. Uh, Getting stuck maybe a little tip over or unsuccessful hill climb. You've got to go back down, hit it again. That's all part of it. Mm -hmm. The figuring out whether you should be stopping to, to check your line. If you, when you pull up to the section, if you don't spot, if you're not able to spot your, your line right off the bat, you're not able to map it out in your mind with your eyes as you're riding up to it. Well, that's when you know you have to stop, right? Yes. uh, Because if you don't, you may be stopped in the section (laughs) rather than before it. And that's a big part that I see of people out. Um, We did two backcountry discovery routes and we met a lot of other riders hung up on logs, stuck in the mud, off the trail, down ravines, all kinds of things because they didn't pick a good line. Uh, Sometimes if you're intent on keeping with a more experienced rider in front of you and they're not really observing that you're less qualified, they pick a line and they probably don't even slow down that much. Maybe they drop a gear, that's it. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden they don't see your headlight in their mirror. Right, because you can be surprised by stuff. And and that's, I guess, one of the difficulties you're talking about is that um, if even if you scouted it as you're coming up, there can be those surprises that maybe you couldn't quite see. Yes, and you don't know that till you get in there sometimes. 
so for, for what kind of things do we look for when we're picking our line? So as far as obstacles go. I think before you even get into the deep bush, the skill sets you should have is be able to put your front tire where you want it to and be able to maintain traction in different terrain before you get in there. Oh, so what you're you're doing, you're talking about the skills that you need before you worry about picking your line. Yeah, you, you've got to have yeah. some basics here. Okay, that, that's a great place to start. How do we do that? Um, even if you can't get off-road, if you pick a parking lot you're allowed to be in, there'll be painted lines. So the longest painted line you have, try riding very, very slowly, standing up, and ride the line. That gives you the skill sets and the practice we recommend to do it is your eyes have to be up looking not in front of your fender or tire because you're going to wobble like crazy. So your eyes have to be up looking down the trailer road or parking lot and your peripheral lower vision sees the line 10 feet in front of your bike. But the main focus of the center of your eyeball is up, looking ahead. That's okay. fantastic practice. Okay, I get it. So, so the reason you're saying this is, is because if you can't keep the bike onto whatever line you choose, there's actually no point in even choosing your line. So it yeah, makes exactly. sense. Right, okay, I, I'm following you now. So that makes sense. You've got to master that first. Yeah. So adjusting where you put your front tire steering we think it's best achieved off-road standing up and you adjust the weight into your boot for peg steering. That's far better than handlebar steering. Because if you're moving the bars around and you're sitting down in mud and sand, uh, you're not going to have the results you'd hoped for. You're going to learn how to pick up your bike. So it's critical that adventure riders are comfortable with standing up, riding slowly in first gear. So we, the coaching I hear all the staff say, and myself, eyes up, stand up, peg steer, and control your speed, not with your right hand. Because every time you adjust the throttle, you're adjusting suspension and subsequently traction which is problematic if you're in rougher sections. So if you slip the clutch a little bit, it takes the bite and the edge off of throttle input and throttle reduction. So you don't get as much dive on the suspension. Right, because the idea is while you're picking your line, the reason you've done that is because it's going to be a tricky ride to go through it. So you need as much Absolutely. control and, as, and the least amount of jerking, which you would get by using the throttle. Throttle, right. exactly. Okay. An example is in our stage two BMW GS training, we have a plastic culvert. They're black and it has ripples on it. If you can imagine that kind of water pipe. Mm-hmm. And we've buried it into the sand, so you have to ride approaching it and not go over it. You ride its length. So you're up on the top of this plastic pipe. And the only success you'll be able to have is if you give it a little shot of momentum before you get the bike up on top of this pipe. And then you just clutch. No throttle input whatsoever. 
and just try to balance across it with peg steering. And it is extremely difficult. It's like trials riding, but we're doing it on big GSs. Because it's slippery, isn't it? Very, very slippery. So if you're an inch to the right or left from the center, then the front wheel falls off. Now, it's not dangerous, but it's extremely difficult to do. But it encompasses all the skills that we've talked about. Vision, peg steering, being able to control the speed with the clutch. Mm-hmm. We don't recommend that you try that right away. That's really, really hard. Okay. So how do we go about choosing a line? What are we looking for? How do we choose which way the bike should go? Well, traction's a big part of it. And we want the easiest route through, we'll call it a section, because I just did some trials competition. So my brain's on <laughs> that piece of ground we call a section. So let's say it's a rocky hill. If you just blunder in there with your eyes closed and the throttle on, you're probably going to hit a lot of big rocks that you could have avoided if you controlled the speed with the clutch and moved the bike zigzagging around the rocks with your boots on peg steering, standing up. So your judgment of when to turn right to avoid a rock, you can only attain that judgment with your eyes up and you see the rock way ahead of you. And then you have to have the skill to be able to move the bike over there. Right. Okay, but but back up though to that choosing the line. So we haven't ridden it yet. We're just coming up to the section and whether we stopped or whether we're doing it while we're riding, where what are we looking for on there? Like in other words, you know, are are we are we looking for the smoothest route? Are we are we looking for the driest route, the highest route, the lowest route? What are we after? It it gets complicated. There's probably five or six elements. If it's a flat trail, that's relatively easy. But where it gets the degree of difficulty goes up is if there's a cambered slope to the trail. Is there moisture or sand on the trail? A lot of trails with repetitive use and years of erosion have exposed roots on the trail. So picking a line as the trail gets a little more difficult, maybe there's some elevation involved as well it has you have to be going slow enough to have the time to make the judgment okay you know what the best line is on the left oh man i see a huge pothole or rock on the left now so you've got to be able to go back to the other side or maybe there's a lot of erosion ruts cutting through the trail you sometimes have to cross them and go to the other side And again, that decision can't be made when your front tire is inches away from the rut. You've got to plan ahead, a couple of chess moves ahead, and that only comes from vision. So would it be fair to say that we're aiming for, we're always looking for the smoothest route? That way it keeps our tires in contact with the ground. It stops us from bouncing around, gives us the most control. Would that be what we're looking for as a a concept? Yeah, I think for the majority of that decision-making, you could say this: we're looking for the smoothest route. But sometimes traction is better down 
into the rut if it's really cambered, if it's really got a slope to it. So it may appear the smoothest line is on the left, but you won't get traction up there because it's such a steep angle. Right. So, so, it, so for instance, if the trail was off camber, it was wet mud or something like that, um, it may be smooth and it would definitely be the smoothest route, but you're going to slide down anyway when you get on yeah. that. So you're going to have to adjust for that. And I guess with what you're saying though, is if there's sections where there's traction and no traction, that's where you want to plan in advance. You use the traction spots to get over the no traction spots. Yes. You need a shot of throttle while you've got traction and then just clutch it through the real slippery stuff. Because mm. if you give it the shot of throttle in the slippery stuff, you've probably got your traction control off. If you're off-road, you should. Then that's when people fall because the back end will drift to the right or left and they don't have their hand on the clutch so they can't save it. A save is when your bike turns diagonally left or right, you were planning on going straight. And if your two fingers are already on the clutch, you can pull it in. That takes the power away. That stops the brake slide or the rear end drifting. Then you straighten your steering. You look where you want to go and slip the clutch out carefully again. But you can't do that if your hand's on the left grip, not on the clutch. Mm-hmm. So in other words, the fingers over the clutch, two fingers or one finger over the clutch. Yes, always. Yeah. Do you do two fingers or one finger? Uh, it depends on the bike. I've got a, a BMW 800 that's a cable-operated clutch, and one finger is very tiring. But on the new 1250 I have, it's a hydraulic clutch. I can get away with one finger easily. Mm, that, that's what I find. Mine's cable. And I often, I'll use both. It depends. I'll use one finger sometimes and two fingers other times because uh, a lot of times it's, I think my sort of standard is two fingers. If I use one finger, I tend to slide my hand as far over to the left so I get the most leverage out of it as I can. Yes, absolutely. And sometimes just a little tip, um, maybe your hand isn't as big as ours, length of fingers, etc., And it's a struggle for some folks coming to the off-road course if luckily bmws you push the lever away from the handlebar and there's a circular dial with numeric one to five or something so you can shorten the engagement point of the lever so if your hands aren't that big you can still ride perfectly safely but if your fingertips are all the way extended on the clutch or brake, when it starts to engage, then you need to customize the levers. The one thing with moving the lever closer to the bar as you bring it in, it tends to squish your fingers more, of course, when you're pulling the clutch in. Yeah, I adjust mine so that I can have some fingers around the grip. And when I pull the clutch all the way in full disengagement, I'm not crushing my hand. Right. So I, I take the trouble if I'm testing a bike or getting on a new bike to adjust it properly. And that's ready for that ugly off-road section when I want full clutch control. But I still want some digits to help me hang on to the handlebars. Mm, makes sense. Well, what we've talked about so far is finding our line, choosing our line in a sort yes. of a slow speed environment, kind of like trials. 
It's kind of like that. It's all very slow speed, but there's also route finding at a higher speed. For instance, if you're going to climb a hill, you would do the same thing. You're, you're choosing your line yeah. before you actually start to climb that hill. You'd be choosing your line and continually as you go up. How, how is that different from what we just talked about? Yeah, uh, the degree of height of the hill, the angle of it, it's going to necessitate speed, momentum in order to get up the hill. So you've got to really have a good idea of vision as far up the hill as possible to avoid ruts or rocks or roots. And if you do have to go over that stuff, momentum is your friend. But slip the clutch just as you're going over the ugly stuff and you'll get less bounce on the suspension because the bike's uh, suspension isn't as stiff. Under throttle, our rear suspension hunkers down and that helps give us bite and traction. But you don't want to hit roots climbing up a steep hill with the throttle on. So you just let go, slip the clutch a bit, coast over, bounce over, and then get back on the gas. So it doesn't spin wildly out of control and, and then exactly. spin you around, like you said, right? And it just, the more throttle you have engaged with the clutch out, the more bounce you're going to get on logs and ruts and rocks. We're going to take a quick break. I have a couple of things that I know you're going to want to hear about that I want to tell you about. But when we come back, the first thing we're going to jump into is when you've chosen your route and you're partway through and you find you have to stop for some unforeseen reason, how do you figure out where to stop, what you should be looking for, and how to get going again? That and a whole bunch more coming up. Stay with us. Moto Camp Nerd. What is it? It's a store that specializes in motorcycle camping gear. And that is original. You don't see, as a matter of fact, I've not come across another one like this. It's the brainchild of Ben and Mary Williams in North Carolina. They say that every item they stock at Moto Camp Nerd is for size and durability, specifically for motorcycle campers. Ben and Mary are happy to try and sort out any of your questions, fire them at them. They will help you get sorted. They are dealers for the top brands in the industry, and they have a brick-and-mortar store, which means you can actually walk into the store in Archdale, North Carolina, and choose something to buy right off the shelf, or you can do what most people do and just order online. The website is motocampnerd.com. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Motocampnerd.com. Giant Loop believes it's simpler and lighter is better and how and where we ride shouldn't be dictated by what's strapped onto our motorcycles and that riding is just plain more fun when all that unnecessary weight and bulk are removed. That is something you just cannot argue with. Giant Loop eliminates elements focusing on what's needed to serve a product's mission. No extra straps or buckles, no everything in the kitchen sink designs. Instead, each product is purpose-built to enhance the riding experience and for those who want modular and customizable packing systems, that's durable, stable, intuitive, and lightweight. GiantLoopMoto.com is the website. You'll find them at quality retailers all across the globe. GiantLoopMoto.com. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. GiantLoopMoto.com. When we're traversing this, this line, if we have to stop, for some reason, maybe we couldn't see around the corner and I guess we should have walked it to begin with. But if for some reason we have to stop during this, this technical section, 
what sort of things should we be looking for? What place should we stop at? Yeah, so if you do have to stop, maybe it's to just catch your breath for a minute and reassess what ahead of you, what line you want to continue at because you've come around a corner or you're approaching a corner. Mm -hmm. You want to stop where you can reach the ground because even if your legs are tall, if there's a cambered part of the trail, a slope, that's a long way down to put your foot and that may cause a tip over. Or if it's really bad traction, don't stop in the mud puddle. Stop before it or after it. Because it, it's going to be a challenge to get going without wheel spin and getting stuck. Because you don't have any momentum. You just stopped. Mm-hmm. You see this a lot in rocks, don't you? Where, yes. where someone will be going through rocks and they're very tentative and they end up stopping and bumping into a spot where their front wheel's against a rock and it's, it's almost impossible to get going again. Yeah, especially with these big, heavy adventure bikes that we love. Uh, they, they prefer to have some momentum because if you just nudge up against a rock or a root, that may stop that front tire from going over it. And even though you light up the throttle, they're so heavy, it may just dig a hole if it's soft terrain. So you should be looking for a spot that you can get going again. And you, you need some room in front of your front and rear tires, particularly your front, um, to get going, get, get some momentum so you can get up for the next obstacle. Exactly. And uh, a mistake a lot of riders make is they stop a little too close to the rider in front of them. Mm. And now they're covered in mud and there's rocks flying, (laughs) sand flying. (laughs) And the person in front of them, they're not even aware of it. They're not being mean or anything. So I don't stop real close to people. I was going to mention that you you just made me think of something else that you've mentioned before about the, the fact that we're not the only ones on the trail. So when you're picking your line, you have to consider that. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so let's say you you do happen to stop and there's a lot of, there's a left-hand corner coming up. You can't see around that corner and off-road, there could be Jeeps, trucks, side-by-sides, ATVs, other bikes coming and they might be going faster than you are just because they know the trail or they're in a vehicle that, Um, balance isn't an issue if it's four wheels. So we always say stay to the right when turning a left blind corner and for going uphill, stay to the right. Because it has happened where people have met head on in the trail Mm -hmm. and obviously for very drastic consequences. Or just just let your friend go first. <laughs> well, that might not even help you though. They could be behind. No. That. That's one of those cases where that might not work. No, it's true. <laughs> the only thing with having somebody in front of you is that somebody's aware that there are vehicles there and, and they might uh, slow down coming uh, towards you. But it's, yeah. it's an interesting thing that, that what you're saying about because they may be able to go faster than you. And that happens a fair bit if you find ATVs on the trail. Um, I just had that happen the other day when I was out. I'm going along a trail and an ATV just comes whipping the other way. And yes. they hardly slowed down to go by me. I was really surprised at the speed they went by, but they hardly slowed down. And geez, you wouldn't want to be in the wrong spot at a, at a hill. And, and I'm sure, yes. you, like we've talked about this before, about anytime you're you're riding hills or areas like that, you're always on the extreme right and on the extreme alert. Like you're almost counting yes. on somebody coming around the other corner. So you're ready to react. Yes. 
And a little tip is if you do encounter someone, you just come around the corner, you've got people in your group behind you, let the oncoming vehicle, whoever they are, let them know. Uh, so in snowmobiling, we take our left hand off the bar and we do an up and down motion with our thumb out, meaning there's riders behind. Or if you have gloves with digits, not like a great big mitt, show how many fingers, five, four, three, that type of thing. Mm -hmm. And that lets the oncoming rider know that there are people behind you. Mm -hmm. And then what we do is you hold open, you hold out your left arm with a closed fist pointing down. That means as far as I know, I'm the last person in my group. So I give that signal a lot. I'm the sweep rider on a lot of our trips. I guess the good thing about that is even if the the person coming the other way doesn't really understand what you're doing, you kind of caught their attention and you've made yes. them think, what exactly is he trying to tell me or she trying to tell yeah. me? Yeah. Or some people just wave back. <laughs> That's right. Well, I was thinking that when you're holding your thumb up and you're doing it's that. Very going, friendly. Yeah, thumbs up to you, buddy. Yeah, good to you, buddy. Take I'm going to speed up now. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> hey, well, what if it all goes wrong? So, so what if you get in there and, and you, you can't, you know, something doesn't work out? What do we do? Yeah, but I think this is going to happen to all of us if it hasn't already. And depending on where you are, let's say you have a tip over. Um, take a look at your surroundings first. You don't have to dive up, jump up and whip your bike up off the ground. Uh, that hurts a lot of backs and pulls muscles, groin injuries. You don't have to panic. If your bike's still running, shut it off and then kind of assess, have I got good footing? Should I put my side stand down? Should, can I lift it with my butt into the seat and go backwards? That's successful if you've got saddlebags or big crash guards or something. That's So the bike really isn't flat on the ground. Mm-hmm. Or maybe you use the handlebar method, kind of like the Egyptians with leverage. That's how they built everything. Use the length of your handlebar with the steering and put it to full lock. So if it falls on the left-hand side, turn your bike full lock to the right with the bars on the ground. And then both hands on the left side and then stand it up using your legs, not your back. And I like that you're saying, you know, don't panic about it. Don't assess. I mean, if anybody's there with a camera, they're going to get a picture of you picking it up anyway. So just forget about it. It's going to happen. You know, you're going to be caught that way. But it does tend to be a more common reaction where people want to pick it up right away. want to get that bike back up to where it should be. But a lot better to take your time and say, okay, what's my situation here? And that's like a Boy Scout thing, isn't it? You know, where they teach you if you get lost in the woods, what you first thing you do, the first thing, empty your pack and and, uh, assess things. See what you got. Exactly. Um, Sometimes, you know, I've been stuck in sand in Baja and it's really hot to begin with. I'll take the helmet off, take my jacket off and then I'll attack getting the bike out. So if the rear wheel rear wheel is buried more throttle is not your friend it just gets stuck more sometimes you'll have to drag the bike like tip it over and then drag the rear wheel out of the hole and then stand it up but there's no sense doing that if you're 
if it's really, really hot with all your gear on. Mm-hmm. Sometimes uh, take the helmet off, your jacket off, find some sticks. You know, there's always lots of dead limbs around in a forest. Put that in the mud. Gives you a little better purchase with the boots. Mm, that makes sense. And I also always buy adventure boots that have got an enduro sole. They've got great treads. Uh, the softer, the better. It's just your foot pegs will chew them up, but you can get them resold. But a lot of people buy a motocross boot because there's far more motocross boots at a motorcycle shop than there is adventure boots at the big supply places. And the motocross boots, you're not walking back down a hill to help your friend. You just need a really good hard sole. But there's very little tread, if any, on the bottom. And so having the proper gear really helps you in these instances as well. You're talking about the motocross boot not having much tread, but you told me that you, you've replaced your soles on yours. Yeah. If you buy the CD Crossfires, you can pay it with $70 Canadian. And there's a flathead screwdriver, I think six of them. And you can take the sole on and off of that particular brand of boot. Mm-hmm. So I order, they're a motocross boot, but I order the Enduro sole for it. So it's an extra $70. Oh. And I've had a pair for nine years and I still haven't worn out. They're chewed up a bit where I stand a lot, but um, I wear them many days a week when I'm working. And uh, yeah, you change them yourself. Yeah, they're easy. It's I see. Just, so the CD Crossfire, now that's a very heavy duty, uh, well, it's a motocross boot, isn't it? It's a, um, yeah. It's, uh, I do have a pair of CD Adventure boots, so they're waterproof and they've got a good sole as well, but they don't have as good a protection lower leg as the Crossfire. So it's a little more, I guess, a competitor's boot. Mm-hmm. Not that I'm a competitor. Well, I'm the, I used to be the fastest guy in my street gym, but then my two sons started riding. Because <laughs> you're the only rider. There's no one else on the street. Yeah. <laughs> hey, it's good to be good. The best is something, right? That's right. <laughs> but uh, a good boot, it'll last for like once your feet stop growing, uh, I and I'm going to be in the sport for a while. I invest in really good gear mm. because it's going to protect you and last. We were in the Yukon two years ago, and there was a nice police officer from Waterloo who had a fantastic uh, Africa twin all decked out. But I noticed and I commented, those are uh, like street boots, aren't they? They weren't very high above the ankle, very, very soft, and Velcro closures. And he goes, yeah, they're really, really comfortable. I'm going, but you know, if if you crash off-road, that is not going to protect you much. Always the the lecturer. It's hard for me to take my little instructor hat off. <laughs> so I'm sure this guy thought, who's this Yahoo lecturing them? You know, my mom and dad are back in Waterloo, buddy. <laughs> so uh, two days later, he had a get-off in on a sandy section of the Dempster Highway and he had to ride the rest of the trip with a broken ankle. Now we didn't know it was broken. All I had was the elastic wrap bandages, tension bandages. Mm -hmm. And we iced it every night when we could find ice because it's pretty rural motel. Some didn't even have ice. 
Uh, but he is one tough son of a gun. But how much could he enjoy the ride when his left ankle was busted? Oh, yeah. Like every gear shift must have been excruciating. And had he had good boots on, he admits it now, he went out and bought a pair of, of proper adventure boots that it wouldn't have been a problem. Yeah. Yeah, no, it makes sense. Uh, let, let me jump back though to to choosing yes. that route. So choosing that route. So we're we're looking for the smoothest route, maybe the straightest route. Um, we it, we certainly need traction, or at least to be a need to, need to be aware of where we can get traction and where we may not have traction. And we have to watch for off camber and slippery things that are that are going to change our direction of travel um, counter to what we want. So that's on your your sort of your average hill. What about sand? Oh boy. It's probably the nemesis of most adventure bike riders. Uh, unless you grew up in Arabia, none of us really rode a lot of sand. Or um, upper state Michigan is very, very sandy. Most of their trails have deep sand. Mm -hmm. So um, I only mention them because we get a lot of participants at our school from Michigan to take the two-day BMW school because it's a lot shorter drive for them than going somewhere else in the U.S. And these guys are amazing in sand, like really, really good. And they have it down pat as far as there is no such thing as picking a line in sand. You just try to keep it between the trees <laughs> and hope for the best because the bike wants to go where it wants to go. So that peg steering control and slipping the clutch is even more critical and momentum is even more critical in sand you have to be on the throttle now you, blipping it and now you're saying that there you know there's not much point or no point in, in choosing a line because because sand's so fluid because it all fills back in is that what you're saying yeah i think you if you choose a line and in your head, you're saying to yourself, you know what? I'm going there. Uh, no, you're not. You're probably not going to go. You can attempt it, but you have to be flexible in your line because it's going to change once you get in there in deeper sand. Uh, there is some truth, which I teach and I, I do myself. It's usually going to be chewed up more in the middle where everybody else has gone in there blipping the throttle, maybe they've gotten stuck and they're roosting, that's making it softer. Where the sand's going to give you the best traction is where it's more solidified. So it's closer to the edge of the trail. The right-hand side's the best, if you can. And if there's tufts of grass sticking through then that's fantastic traction compared to where it's all chewed up in the middle. So there is some truth in picking a line in the sand uh, because you can choose left, right, or center to give you the best traction. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And mud is kind of like that too, isn't it? Mud can be problematic if you're taking the route that everyone's already taken, particularly if they've been running through with different kinds of vehicles. Yeah, uh, mud's different because you can't see where the ruts are and the rocks and the sticks. You can hope that the line you choose is better than others' choices that have made in front of you. But 
what we always say with mud is look at the tire tracks on either side. And it stands to reason because it's soft, soft material, there's going to be a rut lined up between the tire track entering the mud that then disappears and exiting on the other side. So the danger in not being able to see the line you've selected once you're in the water or mud is that you might try to change that and cross rut and that'll wipe you out. Right. So it's very, very important to be flexible and that's a light hand on the grips and covering the clutch. So if, if your traction changes, you can adjust it with clutch and throttle and peg steering. Uh, so, sometimes I'll ride the crown of the trail if it's a little higher in the middle because ruts of ATVs or trucks or bikes have made real big ruts on the left and right. But in the middle, it's actually higher ground. The issue is often it has some camber to it and you can slide off it yeah. into one of the ruts. Yeah, it's, a, it's like one day you'll be able to do to ride that. The next day it's going to be too wet sort of thing. Yes, that's where clutch control is really important. It's like that culvert that we talked about. Mm -hmm. um, it's You've got to be incredibly smooth and precise with the steering. What about crossing a river then and choosing your line for that? How do you choose your line for crossing a river? Yeah, I think that requires stopping on one side and then really taking a minute to look at it. And you judge, is there a lot of current? You know, if you see tree limbs going by really fast, that's going <laughs> to be problematic. <laughs> that's when you might want to turn around and call it a day at yeah. that point. If there's white water slapping up, mm -hmm. that could be an issue. So if you're just riding up towards it, some of the time, the water won't be too deep for you. And you can just go right across and up the bank. Use your momentum to get out of the river because usually there's a bank. And that gets slippery the more people that have crossed because you're dragging water up onto the bank that becomes mud. And the first few people that go through will have a better chance of getting out of the river. The 50th person that weekend may not be able to get out because it's too chewed up. Mm. So many times I've walked across small streams and rivers with a stick first. Or you could be the hero and just charge in like John Wayne on a horse <laughs> and hope you can get through it. Which, but you it, know, can go one way or the other. You can either look like the sure hero can. when you make it through or you look like the doofus when you go down for not checking and, the line. And the worst scenario is you tip the bike over with it running. So now the air box sucks water into the engine. You've got water in your oil. And you could even do damage to the engine. If you're hard on the throttle, you can't compress water. So on you know, 99% of adventure bikes on this side of the equator are four strokes. So now you're trying to push water with a piston and it could bend connecting rods, bend valves. That's a huge, huge expense. And 
you don't have a ride out. Mm-hmm. So to me, it's worth two, three minutes worth of time, park the bike where it's safe and dry, get my feet wet if I don't have waterproof boots on, and I get a stick that I can poke in front of me to find any holes if it's darker water and I can't see the bottom, find out where the boulders are, and pick a line on my boots first before I try riding it. Mm-hmm. And I'm in no hurry to be the first guy across either. Let me tell you that. That's definitely let your friend go first. See how their success was. And really watch where other riders have been or are going. And that will help you determine your line. And in MUDS is the same way when we're talking about that. Is that you don't, as you mentioned, you don't know what's underneath the surface. So unless you're getting out and actually checking it, some places, certainly some of the places you and I ride here in Ontario, the, the mud can be very, very deep. I mean, you can end up with a serious stuck situation. So you definitely want to check that out. But you mentioned with the mud, you're looking at the other side for the track. You can do the same with the river. Look at the other yes. side and see where they're going out. But I think it's usually fairly obvious, isn't it? it? Is. Like, but it, but without getting out and walking it, it it's really, it's, it's a crapshoot. You're just going through and taking a chance. Yeah. And to me, it's just too risky because mm-hmm. I don't want water in my engine. Um, the last time I did it, I was teaching, chief instructor, by the way, And I stopped on a trail with, I think I had eight customers. And I said, okay, here's a real practical application of how to ride through really big puddles. This was about maybe 30 feet across the width of the trail. You could go around it. People had made a little bypass in the trees. But that's why we were there, to learn how to do this stuff. So I didn't walk it because I've done it. 20 times that summer. Mm -hmm. Well, the 21st time didn't go so well. Someone must have been stuck in there in a four-wheel drive truck and made about a three-foot hole. And then maybe they winched themselves out. I don't know. And so I went in where I had ridden it many times. All of a sudden, the front wheel wasn't there anymore. My bike just fell out underneath. And of course, I had just enough momentum to do it normally. I wasn't anticipating this because you can't see it was dark water. So when the front tire hit the front edge of this hole, I made it almost all the way across the puddle, but I wasn't on the bike anymore. (laughs) In front of the paying customers, who I'm sure were thinking, look at this chucklehead, we paid money for this. They're probably thinking, I don't like this technique. This looks really difficult to do. (laughs) The worst thing was I was on my favorite, favorite old bike. It's called an HP2. Oh, you're on the HP2? I I think I saw a photo of this. Yes. (laughs) Right. I've circulated that around. I'm not sure why. It's probably lost business. (laughs) But (laughs) then I had to teach... uh, the customers, this is, hey, let's do a lesson on how to tow a motorcycle. (laughs) So always a learning experience. So I had to get towed back on my own bike, which was quite an experience. And then, you know, I got another bike to finish the course. But the next day, it took me four oil changes to get the oil looking good. It looked like a milkshake because of all the water in it. Yeah. So, and whenever water from a mud puddle gets in an engine, there's fine silt 
like you wouldn't drink that water because of the sand and mud in it. So it just broke my heart thinking, should I tear the engine completely apart? I didn't do that, but I'm sure I affected the lifespan of the motor. Yeah, that's certainly got to do some damage. I think maybe on a minute scale, but but still, yes. I mean, our, our bearings, uh, luckily on on these engines, are made to absorb yes. the the tiny bits of grit and stuff. They're, they're sort of soft, so um, right with any luck, that's what's happened, and and you'd be good. But time that's what tell, I'm telling myself. <laughs> It'll right. outlast me. I'm sure. Sure, it will. Sure, it will. <laughs> but the hey. point is, it's really worth stopping and checking out water crossings before you do it. Sometimes there's a way around it mm-hmm. rather than charging in. I was going to mention that the thing with water is for me and, and, and I'm just an average rider, but that's what worries me when I ride. I don't think anything else really worries me other than getting stuck and not being able to get out because I'm by myself most of the time, but it's water crossings. I do not want to drop my bike in the water and for, for several reasons, but one, I don't want it to hydraulic. Right. And, and that's, yes. that's the, the fear with the, the water crossing and you'll see people pull into, I mean, we've talked about this before as well, but do we see people pull into, to do water crossings just going way too fast? The water's spraying yep. everywhere. It looks sensational, but man, when things go wrong, they go wrong fast. That looks sensational too. We actually had an instructor uh, years and years ago, he had a brand new KLX 300. He was so proud of it. And our instructors were on one side of this really long puddle after heavy, heavy rain. And they were stopping the group to teach how to go across it. So this hero on the other side said, hey, I'll be your demo rider. Watch this. And when people say, watch this, <laughs> that. My, that is usually a crash. That, that's a time to, that you should definitely watch this. <laughs> yeah, get the camera. Yeah. And so they hit it in third gear, just hauling. And water's pretty interesting. The bow wave coming off your front tire can actually take your boot off the foot peg when you're standing up. I've had it happen to me. So that happened to this guy. So now, with only one foot left on the pegs, the bike veered, peg steering, into a tree on the side of the puddle and actually bent the frame of this brand new bike right at the steering head. He luckily was thrown off into the mud and water to the great amusement of the (laughs) big customers. Yeah, so oh, we man. razzed him about that for years and years. Yeah. 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 Anyway, let, let's go back. Uh, well, just to wrap things up here, I want to go back. Yes. You've got a stage one, stage two, stage three. Can you just walk through those? Yeah. For learning how to do this? So there's no sense choosing a line if you can't put the bike where you've decided to go. So that's peg steering, eyes up, slipping the clutch. You can practice that in a flat field, you know, grass, gravel, whatever you have. Uh, We cut an old carpet that was white. I cut it into 20-foot strips about in length and about six inches wide. So we put them down. So if people run them over, it doesn't matter. I tease them and say it's $5 every time you touch the carpet to motivate them, but they know I'm kidding. And... If they go off onto the carpet, maybe give it gas at the wrong moment, you have to replace the carpet. 
But who cares? There's no way they can get hurt doing that. Mm -hmm. And the goal, obviously, is not to ride. You have to ride the six-inch or eight-inch space between the strips of carpet. You, we've also used, you can buy siding for a house that's plastic or mo corner edge molding. And I get it in as long a length as possible. And it's a safe way to practice being able to put your front tire where you want it. And that's key. So you're running Stay these two to parallel to each other, just wide enough to ride down the middle and practicing keeping it in a straight line. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Then stage two, we use white plastic pipe because it's really easy to see. And it's about maybe a three inch pipe. So if they do ride up on it, you could crash, but we've already practiced the skill sets with a flat, long obstacle. Then, or you could use actual logs, a couple of them. So we, we have both. So the reason for doing this in stage two is to up the, the, uh, the risk level, I guess? Exactly. Okay. And the odd time a customer will fall because they looked at the log. If you want to hit it, just look down at it. Mm-hmm. You've got to look up at the end of the ground in front of the logs that you're trying to pass between. And that prepares you to be able to put your front tire either on the left or the right side of long ruts created in the spring, usually when the, the ground is soft or any time of year that the ground is soft and heavy vehicles have gone through there, mm -hmm. you're going to get ruts. And then... We progress from that into a little more difficult. We go out into the forest and find some ruts. We have a few hills that are very, very rocky. So now it isn't so much being able to go in a straight line, but it's being able to put your front tire where you want in order to get the best traction and the smooth transition through that section. And But you can't get there. You can't do that just by jumping in. You've got to practice it first. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. And you, you mentioned eyes up. Um, can you talk about where we're looking and, and how far ahead we're looking? Yeah, you're, you're smart that we clarify that. When we say look up, we're talking about look over your headlight up in front of you on the trail. Um, if you're in traffic on a street bike, you've got to look almost as far as your vision can see to see what traffic in the city is doing. Then work your eyes back down. So we've talked about it before, and I learned this by talking to vision experts. Your clarity of focus is best from the center of your eyeball. So you want to be looking straight up, not up in the air, but straight in front of your bike to determine where the best route for you is. But your lower peripheral vision sees the ground in front of you. It's not crisp focus. You won't be able to tell how long the snake is that you're approaching with your lower peripheral vision, but you can see it. But until you look down at it with the round part of the eye, it's not crisp focus. But you, if your head is looking down right in front of the bike, then you're going to have problems because by the time you see the rut, the rocks, the roots, whatever it is, 
you don't have the reaction time to move the bike. You might get stuck in it. Yeah, you're almost just reacting at that point, aren't you? You're acting and you don't have the time, as you said, to come up with a plan. You're just instantly reacting to everything that, that comes in front of you when you're looking straight down. Whereas if you're looking ahead, you're planning and you, you yes. don't have to react. You've got a plan. You can react to what happens as you go over it because everything doesn't turn out, as you said, the way you plan it. But you're not doing that that panic almost of looking in front and just reacting to every little thing. Yeah, and that's the most common coaching that I think anyone taking any kind of motorcycle training hears is eyes up, eyes up. Mm -hmm. I had a customer once, he flew from Jamaica to visit family and friends in Toronto and thought, you know what, I'm going to get a motorcycle license. And then he was planning on buying a bike when he went home. I've never met someone who could not look up. This guy stared right in front of the front fender. He hit two other students. He couldn't turn a corner if his life depended on it because he couldn't see. So I came up with an invention which was vetoed by the, <laughs> the rest of the chief instructors, but it worked for this guy. At lunch, I took a bike down and I made a great big cardboard windshield. And it was quite high. So you had to have your neck elongated up to peek over the top of this thing. There was no way this guy could look down. And I gathered everybody around after lunch. We had 50 students on a weekday course. And I said, folks, you know how the instructors have been bugging you all the time to look up? What do you guys think of this invention? This is de designed so that you have to ride looking up. There's no place oh. else to look. <laughs> and we need a volunteer. Oh, Jasper, thanks for putting your hand up. <laughs> of course, he didn't put his hand up, but I made him ride it. And it worked. After an hour, I took off this. I just duct taped this great big hunk of, of cardboard shaped in a round windshield shape. Yeah. I took it off and he was amazing. He passed his test with one demerit point, And that was just for skidding at the wrong time. But his, uh, his vision was fixed. Wow. So I don't recommend people do that. But it worked for this guy. Because mm. he would have died on a bike in traffic. Because he just didn't look up. I thought you were going to say you put a, a strap on the back of his helmet or something. Pulling the, <laughs> pulling the well, helmet back. But it's just as bad, if not worse. Yeah. <laughs> I could imagine in court. I would be called the defendant instead of Clinton if you did that. <laughs> so you actually right. tape the child's helmet yeah. to his chest protector. Yeah. Right. Wow. Yeah. Well, Clinton, that was great. Thank you very much. Always great to sit down and talk about this stuff, especially while we're sitting here in snow and all we can do is talk and dream about getting back on the bike. Exactly. That's why I'm so excited once a week I can put a podcast of, I think it's called Adventure Rider Radio or something like that. <laughs> and I can vicariously ride with people as I'm driving around in my truck. Well, I appreciate that. Thanks, Glenn. All the best. Take care, Jim.
Okay, just quickly to recap some of what Clinton told us. To begin with, you need to, to start by building the skills of putting your front wheel where you want it. To do this, Clinton uses a system of laying out two parallel lines, space wide enough to ride between, but not much more. Another method he, he suggested was using a line in an empty parking lot, you know, just one of the white lines in the parking lot, and practice riding slow, very slow, using your clutch to adjust your speed and keep the bike going straight on that line. In this exercise, you're going to be using and building your balancing skills, clutch control, peg weighting, and steering skills. And of course, your vision skills, training yourself to look far ahead so that you can assess the route long before you get there. These are all important skills that are used kind of in, in everything you do with riding. It's incredible how these basic skills are so important for us in everyday riding. After practicing the line, you could set up some parallel pipes or logs to ride between. The idea being that with the lines, you could just ride over them if you lost your balance. But with the pipe or log, you might catch the front wheel and, and you sort of risk falling over. That heightens the level of consequences for riding over the line, making you concentrate more on your skill and work harder at it. Then we head out into the real world. We find sections to scout for a line. In scouting, you should be looking for ideally the smoothest route that keeps your tires in contact with the ground for control. If not the smoothest route, probably the, the next best is the straightest route. Because anytime you change direction, it becomes more difficult when the going gets rough. And that's where you end up into more trouble. Look for traction areas, dry rocks, dry dirt, anything that will give you the best traction and use those spots to help propel you over any slippery sections. If you need to stop midsection to reassess, to take a break, make sure you think before you stop. And if you've been focusing with your eyes ahead, like Clinton instructed, not in front of your wheel, but much farther out, then you're likely going to already recognize a spot long before you'll need it. So you'll know where it is and you will plan to stop there. The ideal stopping point allows you to reach the ground easily with a foot to hold the bike up and then provide a clear area in front of the tires to gain momentum when you want to get going again. If you stop at the bottom of a rut, for instance, or against a rock, it can be really difficult, if not impossible, to get going and it often results in flopping over on your side. Balance, clutch control, peg weighting, and a cool head will go a long way for choosing the correct line for you in the rough stuff. That was Clinton Smout we just heard from, from Smart Adventures in Ontario, Canada. Clinton's website is smartadventures.ca. Of course, we've got that link and we've got photos from Clinton for this episode in the show notes on our website, adventureriderradio.com. Hey, I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you by Green Chili Adventure Gear, greenchiliadv.com, Motobreeze Chain Oiler at motobreeze.com, and Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com. And we'd really appreciate it if anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime, email or otherwise, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer Elizabeth Martin and of course to you the listener thank you for being a part of this that's the reason we do it is for you if you're not doing it already can I ask for you to uh, at least consider supporting Adventure Rider Radio it's built on a model of some advertising and listener support and we need your support drop by our website adventureriderradio.com anything $10 or more gets you a sticker sent at you for your pannier your toolbox and Adventure Rider Radio sticker 
anything $50 of more gets you a shout out on our raw show. And what we'd really like you to consider is um, signing up for our Patreon account so you can be there for us each month with any amount. Any amount of support is, is great. Anyway, time to get out there and ride your bike if you can. I hope you can because I can't right now. I think I might do a little snow riding just for the, for the exercise of it, but um, I'm not going to be getting very far with that. Anyway, enjoy your ride if you can. My name is Jim Martin and I will talk to you next week. Hi, this is Charlie Borman, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio.